Welcome to Space People. I'm Richa Sirohi, your host, and today we have an extremely special guest. Her name is Morgan Irons. Um, she's a friend of mine from Cornell, and I'm so excited to have her on because she's honestly just such a rock star and so fierce and so kind. Um, Morgan is a soil and crop science PhD student at Cornell, um, but she also went to Duke for undergrad. She happens to be a Brooke Owens Fellow, class of 2017. Um, she started her own company, which is amazing. Um, and I'm going to let her talk a little bit about herself, but I think she's just a great person. I'm excited for all of you to meet her. Uh, Morgan, welcome to the show. You're one of the first guests I'm interviewing. Think about the second. Um, so <laughs> I apologize if it's a little shaky, but do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm super excited to be here and to contribute to the Space People uh, podcast. It's, it seems like such a, a wonderful uh, project and being able to just meet a bunch of people, hear about people's stories, how they got to where they are. It's it's definitely something that even for someone who's been working on this for years now can be still inspiring to hear what other uh, pathways people have taken and the, the challenges and successes that they've had. So thank you again for having me here. Yeah. So yeah. Thanks for uh, being on the show. <laughs> yeah. So my... My name is Morgan Irons. Um, I, like you said, I am a third year PhD candidate in soil and crop sciences working with Dr. Johannes Lehman in the School of Integrative Plant Science at Cornell University. Um, and my research with my PhD focuses specifically, you could say, on bacterial adhesive mechanisms as well as organo-mineral uh, stabilization mechanisms in soil aggregates and their effects on the persistence and sequestration of soil organic matter and soil organic carbon. So that's very specific. Pretty much I am very much interested in uh, soil biogeochemistry and soil uh, revitalization, soil regeneration. Uh, so that's what I'm working on for my PhD. Um, but outside of my PhD. I wanted to ask yeah. you a quick question mm -hmm. on that. Um, so for like soil regeneration, that's for like agricultural sec sector or does that have other applications? It has applications in pretty much everything ecological system as well as agricultural systems. Uh, we see in the agricultural sector, uh, we have a problem with soil degradation due to the intensive agricultural practices that we've been doing for years. Um, so I'm very much interested in how we can potentially uh, reverse and revitalize uh, uh, these soils that have been undergoing these intensive uh, unsustainable management practices. Um, and then with ecological systems, uh, we see just like when people move into an ecological system, we see degradation that happens due to pollution um, due to uh, unsustainable uh, human presence. And so that can also lead to natural ecological systems being degraded over time as well. Um, so yeah, my research has applications. Just really, I'm very much interested in uh, ecosystem restoration and uh, preservation, uh, just because I, just through my own experiences with nature and seeing uh, as well what 
unsustainable practices can do to a piece of land. I'm very much uh, passionate about uh, how we can uh, conserve and protect our ecological systems here on earth, as well as no matter where we are, I wanna make sure that we don't make the same mistakes that we've made here on earth, on Mars or on the moon or wherever we may find ourselves because that that's just asking for trouble. So can we please just like learn from our mistakes and move forward to have more sustainable human presence and um, just, yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, what, what led you uh, to this passion? Like, I know you started your company while at Duke. Um, how, how, how did you get into that? Yeah, so ever since I was little, I have just, I always loved being outdoors. Um, and one of the most jarring memories that I have growing up was I was born in Washington State and we lived on the desert side of Washington State. Um, and so I, my, some of my earliest memories are like rock piles, desert, tumbleweeds, all of that. <laughs> uh, but when I was four turning five, my dad got a new job over in Virginia. Uh, so we went from the desert of Washington State, the desert of Utah, um, and moved over to the forest, forested region of Virginia and the Chesapeake Bay. And it was such a jarring moment for me because I had never been in an environment where the, I couldn't see into the distance because there's trees everywhere. Um, and then just being by such a huge, huge, beautiful body of water of the Chesapeake Bay, um, it, it just, was really jarring in my mind and made me start to ask questions of why does the environment look like that over in Washington state, but look like this over in Virginia. And so my love for being outside and then these early on questions that I started to ask really started to drive my passion and my interest into the environmental sciences and biology and all of that. Um, so Obviously, like <laughs> some of yeah, my favorite subjects were, I loved all my subjects. I was one of those students, um, <laughs> but I, I was definitely very passionate uh, for the environment and for learning about the science behind why ecosystems function that the way they do. So how do you channel like a, a passion for nature and sustainability and generally wanting to preserve our earth? Um, into a career path, you know, how, what led to, to that decision? Yeah, that's, it's interesting because I, just like a lot of people, was susceptible to what society was telling us. You have to get a good job. It has to be well-paying job. That's the American dream of, like, making yourself into somebody. Um, and so, Growing up, I, I didn't necessarily see a path for going into like environmental science. I mean, I knew about like park rangers and knew about like people working with like the Department of Forestry, you have farmers, but I wasn't really exposed to people in that sector. Instead, what I was really exposed to 
uh, growing up was the medical field, just because um, my family uh, has a lot of health problems. And then uh, when I was in middle school, I was diagnosed with an osteoid osteoma in my left tibia bone, uh, which is in the left leg. Um, and this is a non-cancerous uh, tumor, but it was causing me a lot of pain and it led to me having to like give up on dance and a lot of physical stuff just because I was having so much pain. It's like extreme shin splints. Um, it would wake me up in the middle of the night. It was terrible. Um, so I had to go through surgeries like that. And it's a, that's a long story, but long story short, there are some surgeries that went wrong. I was in a wheelchair for almost a year. Uh, I wasn't able to really walk on my leg fully or do anything with it for almost two years. Um, so I got exposed to orthopedic surgery and got exposed to what it's like to not have the ability to participate uh, in certain activities or not be able to go into certain spaces because I was in a wheelchair and I had this device on my leg. It was, it was crazy. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't say crazy. it was, it was an experience. Um, yeah. yeah. And through all of that exposure and the pain of recovery and even now, like 12 years later, pretty much, I'm still having a lot of issues with this leg, um, especially in this last year. Uh, all of that exposure. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all good. I, I try to keep a positive mindset with like, even though I'm having issues, still having issues with it today, without that, those initial experiences that I had, I would not be where I am today because it had such a major influence on my life. And long story short, again, pretty much this exposure to the medical field led to me looking at schools that had medical programs when I was going off to college, because I was like, I'm going to go into orthopedic surgery. I'm going to help veterans. I'm going to help people, especially in pain management, post-recovery, um, things like that. Um, so when I was looking at schools, I was looking at medical schools. And so that's why I eventually decided on Duke because Duke has a great medical pre-medicine program. And that's why I eventually went that way. So even though I always had this passion for the environment, and even as I was pursuing a medical career, I was participating in tree plantings. I was very much involved in oyster restorations with the Chesapeake Bay. Um, I was just doing all this environmental science stuff, but I was still going more towards the medical field because of my exposure, because of my experiences, because it seemed like a viable path according to what society was telling me as well. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, I actually grew up always loving space, but never thinking it was like a career. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, you know, flat plains, and there wasn't just, a, there wasn't a lot of industry. It felt like everything was very far um, and too many hurdles in the way, you know, people who were in those like in, at JPL and, and other NASA centers or academia, they had parents who were in academia. 
Um, and so I just, I felt like a leg behind and I had a lot of exposure to the medical field. I did like programs to the hospital and volunteered a lot. And I thought the machinery was really cool and I was good at STEM. So I was like, okay, maybe I can be a biomedical engineer. And that's, that's why I picked the school I did um, because I thought it was a viable career path. But even then, you know, I'd, I'd go to all the SpaceX talks and I took all the aerospace classes and looked for internships. And so yeah. it was pretty clear. Yeah. 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 Something about space and the environment and these like passion projects, because we're passionate, they feel inaccessible. Um, but that's not true. Yeah. I think it's like a combination of what society is telling us as well as this kind of negative connotation you could say associated with pursuing childhood dreams or pursue continuing to pursue your passions from childhood it just seems like when you say oh I've been passionate about this since I was little people are like well you're an adult now (laughs) yeah (laughs) you you got to get serious about this and it's and it can really be detrimental um to people uh because I learned through my experience that we'll probably get into more that childhood dreams are viable, that they are something that can become a career, can be pursued in academia, can be sued in industry, whatever your path may be. Um, It may take a lot more work, especially if that, that childhood dream is something like space agriculture, which wasn't like, oh my God, it's, <laughs> it's been a journey with that one, especially, but um, just understanding that your dreams are valid and they, they are something that you can pursue. Uh, and it can, it will be a difficult path. It's like, it may seem like, people who are doing these non-traditional fields or paths seem to be having major successes, but you talk with any of them and they're like, oh my God, all of the challenges, all of the negativity that was directed at me going through this path, it's, it's something that we need to talk about more because it's not only through the happiness that we connect with other people, through the joyful moments, through the moments of well-being, but also through those sad and challenging moments. And it's really through those moments that like are, are, it's gonna sound cheesy, but like our true like selves can come through. Like knowing that like at your lowest moment when people, people are telling you that you need to get stronger, you need to develop this strength that you already have that strength. There's a difference between getting stronger and being strong. Um, and I believe that everyone has the capacity to be strong in the moments that they are in. Yeah, and, I think, you know, you talked about this like American dream and, and finding the right career yeah. path. And I, I agree, there's like this idea that if you talk about the adversity that you faced or that you claim that some external factor and not your own self-motivation or your own education has led to some sort of adversity or something in your path that's blocking success, that somehow that's your fault. Um, you know, we don't really take the time to recognize that there are some people who have, you know, the privilege, right? It's starting to come into the conversation and we need to keep talking about it. 
you know, some people are, are better poised for success and we need to find ways to create more opportunities and avenues and awareness of what's out there. Um, so yeah, I hear you, the, the adversity of, of finding success needs to be more in, in our education. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so going back to the story, you, uh, you find yourself at Duke, you're, you're pursuing med school, but you're sort of a, a tree hugger, if I can say. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what next? Yeah. So I get to Duke. Um, I am part of the Cardea Fellows, uh, which is a, a fellowship program uh, focused on underrepresented communities, as well as people who don't necessarily have the background in medical related activities or fields like chemistry that a lot of other students have. And so uh, I, I was part of that fellowship um, and I was part of that fellowship all throughout Duke and it was a wonderful experience and it definitely helped expose me to a wider worldview, as well as a lot of the disparities in the medical sector as well, because we definitely went into that a lot, uh, which I'm very, very grateful for. Um, and then, of course, a lot of the people that I met and befriended through that program uh, really helped me better understand uh, that when, whatever I do, whatever field that I go into, I need to make sure that I keep my ears open and that I listen more than I talk and that I uh, make space instead of taking space uh, because uh, the people around me have different experiences, different backgrounds that like that can benefit my journey if I just listen and that I can use my privilege as a white woman uh, to help them on their journeys as well. Uh, and so as part of this fellowship program, I was at that time looking at biophysics as my major. Um, but even as I was doing all these medical related things, um, I was still pursuing environmental projects. Uh, I, it's, it's crazy to think about. Within the first month of being at Duke, uh, I connected with the grounds and facility crews at, at Duke, and they created a position for me called the Duke Tree Campus Ambassador. And pretty much what I, what I did was I helped involve uh, Duke students in environmental initiatives that were being led by the uh, grounds and facility crews, as well as get students involved in environmental initiatives in the community. Uh, so throughout my time at, at Duke, I planted like over 300 trees and like was involved in amazing projects, environmental projects on campus, as well as in the Durham community. That's awesome. It's, it's such a rewarding feeling, you know, being able to like give other students those opportunities and, yeah. and use the resources of the institution. And mm -hmm. yeah, that's awesome. Good for you. Yeah. And so it, it was like, I was pursuing these different, these different interests. Um, and my friends noticed, <laughs> they're like, Morgan, We've, we've noticed that <laughs> you're pursuing this academically, 
but your eyes light up every time you're talking about the environment or being outside or doing these things. Why aren't you pursuing environmental science? Like, it, there just seemed to be a little bit of a dissonance here. <laughs> so my friends were pointing it out uh, to me, but it took me, it took me about, I guess, let's see. Uh, it took me a little bit over a year to start to realize this for myself because like, I, I love medicine. I, I love the field of medicine. I love being able to help people, especially uh, when they have uh, medical conditions, because I just, I understand through my own experiences and the experiences of friends and family uh, and their medical stories, like how important medicine is. And so I have a passion for that as well. Um, but I, I was kind of forcing myself in to fit this certain mold that I had not only developed for myself since my experiences in middle school with my leg, but also through feeling pressure that I created myself. It was actually pressure I created my, for myself because some of my excuses in why I couldn't switch my major or go a different path was, well, I already told people that I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. I told people I was gonna like, help veterans and pain management. I, I told people this and that, and I can't disappoint people. Yeah. I think it just goes back to that story of like, we need to have a narrative for success and that will be judged if we deviate or that is because some failure hit us. Like we've made a failed, a difficult class. So we have to change our major, right? That's, that's often the narrative in engineering too, is that if you, if you leave, it's because you couldn't make it. Um, and I, I think that that creates an unhealthy amount of pressure. It makes us unwilling to look at other possibilities. Um, and I, I think I understand where you're coming from is like, you know, we, we see ourselves in this mold or there's this narrative that makes sense, right? You know, you, you overcame yeah. this like physical and, and now still hidden form of adversity and a disability. And, and it, it makes for a good, a good story. And sometimes that's what society really feeds on. But I think, you know, finding what makes us happy in the long term is, is going to be far more impactful for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so good for you. Um, yeah, I can imagine that was a hard decision. Yeah, it, you know, it all came to a head uh, at the end of the fall semester of my sophomore year or my second year at Duke. Um, I had just gotten out of a physics exam. <laughs> uh, and I just started crying and truly just like, there's no shame in crying at all. Yeah, none at all. <laughs> it's it's it, it can be a cathartic release, and I was crying going out of that exam. I I did well in the exam. Um, oh, I have no doubt. <laughs> but but it was just like the pressure, the the pressure I was putting on myself, the the feelings I was having, what my friends were telling me versus what I thought society was telling me. It just all led to this moment where I come home for winter break and I just I just um break down crying and I'm I'm a little bit of a mess (laughs) (laughs) and it's because I was confused and I didn't want to disappoint people 
especially the people whose opinions mattered to me the most. Um, like my family, my close friends, uh, mentors that I've had in the past. So it was my dad who sat me down uh, and had this conversation with me. Uh, and he asked me some really key questions. Uh, he, of course, asked me what was wrong and I expressed like all of my confusion, but like I, I should stay on the same path like, I'm, I'll be fine. I just am having a little bit of a meltdown right now, but I should stay on the same path. And he's like, wait, <laughs> uh, before you make that decision, uh, try to answer these questions. Uh, what are you passionate about? What do you like spending your time on? What brings a smile to your face every time you talk about it or do it? What brings you joy? Um, and of course, the environmental stuff came about, as well as space exploration. Uh, that was something else that was like a childhood passion of mine. I always ask questions of like, what would a forest look like on another planet? Like, I, I also love space yeah. exploration <laughs> as well. So space exploration, environmental science, um, medicine, all of those three things came up. Uh, and then he said, forget about society, forget about money, forget about prestige, just none of that matters. With all of those external things not in your mind, just push to the side. What would you want to do every day of your life that you would want to go into work every day and it would bring you joy even if you have a bad day at work, you still go in the next day because you love what you do. And ultimately what won out, you could say, was my love for environmental science and for space exploration. Those were uh, two passions of mine that were always consistent since I was little. Um, and it's something that obviously I didn't want to give up, even if I relegated it to a hobby or something extra. Um, but when I was being completely honest with myself, that was the thing that brought me pure joy. Being outside, awesome. learning about the environment, learning about how a system works. And so I had these these two passions for the environment, for space exploration, but I didn't know how to connect the two together. And that's another reason why I didn't think like my childhood passions were a viable path because I wanted to combine like environmental science and space exploration together, but I didn't know how. I didn't see anyone doing that. It wasn't really in the media. This is all pre-Martian movie stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I had I hadn't really been exposed to this this idea before of how to connect these two things together, and so my dad said, "Take this break to do the research. Use Google, just like into the world and see what people are doing, what research be, is being done, and see if you can find that bridge." that connects environmental science and space exploration together. And so that's that's what I did. And it was it was the 
the kind of kick that I needed because um, sometimes when we're very much in a situation of depression, anxiety, uh, of just dark negative thoughts, sometimes we need the people around us to help lift us up so that our narrow view that we have in that moment widens. And that's what my dad did. Yeah, I was going to say something, something central to the stories you're sharing is, you know, your friends who, who pointed out your passions to you, because sometimes we're so blinded from what makes us happy. Um, and then your father who took the time to, to sit you down and, and to kind of direct your focus, mm-hmm. right? You know, he recognized that you didn't have the resources or maybe the right mentors, but, you know, encouraging you to find them and having someone who will support you in, in that endeavor, it makes all the difference because they make it feel like trying is, is the, the form of success, right? And you can't really fail. Um, and I, I know I'm always thankful. My parents encouraged me to do, you know, to pursue education. I always had teachers who encouraged me to keep pursuing education. Um, and so I think that support system, even if it's not like the perfect mentor, I, I just encourage people to lean on their communities for their mental health, for their professional success. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm just grateful you had it. It, it can be, it can be hard to find sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I was I was very lucky uh, to have the people that I had in my life, especially in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took the time and really started to expose myself uh, to these concepts and ideas that were not being were not being given to me in academia or through the past experiences that I had. And that's when I found this research that had been done in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s in Soviet Union, Russia. And these experiments were were called the BIOS experiments. And these experiments were on closed ecological systems for space habitation. And I was like, ooh. So specific. What is this? It's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I looked further into it and realized that this was the bridge. This is how I could combine environmental science and space exploration together was through the development of these closed ecological systems for space habitation, which like just blew my mind in the moment that something like this actually existed. And so that was really the catalyst that got me moving into the path that I'm currently on. Uh, I, after learning that and doing some more research on closed ecological systems and also like, I'm I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, but there's like (laughs) this book and I know people who are listening in won't be able to see it. But one of the books that I found was Man-Made Closed Ecological Systems by Gittleson, uh, I'm probably going to pronounce all their names wrong, Gittleson, Livzovsky, and McElroy. Um, And this book, highly, it's it's focused on engineers, but I I read through the entire thing, uh, that that break, um, and it inspired me to take a risk and see if I could pursue an academic path, a career path that's centered on closed ecological systems uh, for space habitation. And so this led to me uh, reaching out to uh, some 
graduate professors uh, in the Nicholas School of the Environment uh, who weren't doing space exploration, but they were doing some fundamental and applicational environmental science that would be important to understand when looking at closed ecological systems. And so I would cold email these professors and be like, hey, you're doing this. Would you want to put a space twist on it? <laughs> Think about these systems, these ecological theories and principles in the context of a space environment. And of course, there were some that said, no, they weren't interested, but there were three that ended up being my mentors for the rest of my time at Duke. Um, Dr. J yeah. That's amazing. It takes it takes some bravery to reach out. But I think, you know, I always think like, what's the worst that's going to happen? They're going to say no. They're going to give you some other resource or they become like a lifelong mentor. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I always tell students, you know, if you're if you're interested in grad school, it doesn't matter if they have won all these awards or you think it'll be a competitive lab. Just reach out because mm -hmm. that's like 10 times more than what anybody else is doing. Um, so, yeah, that, that's awesome. So did you ended up doing research with them? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I I pretty much finished off my sophomore year uh still kind of like keeping the door open for potentially pursuing biophysics but I ultimately ended up changing my major uh so okay it's a little bit more complicated than that because I'm super simplifying everything that went on during that time <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah sense. it's like okay I was thinking about potentially still having biophysics. I was also looking at creating my own major, which Duke has that capability for you to create a major. Um, and then I was also looking at environmental science, biology, chemistry, which is what I ultimately decided upon. I decided to double major in environmental science and biology with a chemistry minor. And I decided to still pursue the pre-medicine track just to keep that avenue open. Um, so I had a lot going on. Yeah, definitely an <laughs> underachiever over here. But. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Yep, it was it was definitely an experience and um, it was a stressful experience. I, I have to admit that like my sophomore year, there are pictures from my sophomore year and I was not taking care of myself um, just because of the amount of stress that I was under. And that's important for me to admit. Uh, because it's not something to be shameful about. It's something to realize that that's what I went through and to remember that I don't want to put myself back into a situation like that. And so it's a reminder for me, but also a point of pride that I was able to make it through. Uh, yeah. that experience. I think sometimes like in universities, there's this culture that says, oh, look, I am barely sleeping. Look how much I'm doing. Um, and we take it as a point of pride and almost competition. I see it, especially in, in many undergrads. Um, but I was really proud of like Cornell grad community because, you know, we put an emphasis on mental health. And I think when I saw people struggling, we'd reach out to mm -hmm. each other. And I, I'd like to see academia have, have more of that because it's such an easy place to burn out in. Yeah. Um, yeah, opportunities yeah. create work and then create stress, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> yeah, I definitely never want to go through that again. After that year, yeah. I learned the importance of mental health and physical health a bit more. Um, so like, I'm, I'm proud that I was able to get through it, but I never want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, always like prioritize mental health. That's something that I made sure I've kept with me uh, going into graduate school. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I, through that experience, I was able to start this research through research independent studies with these graduate professors, um, which is for people who don't know what a research independent study is, a research independent study is where you have a professor who's a mentor and pretty much you both decide on what the goals of the independent study are, um, what the final presentation paper project will be. Uh, and then it's pretty much the work of the student to do their own independent study on a subject uh, that they're interested in. And then they may have like a weekly meeting with the mentor uh, to talk about what they're doing, uh, to discuss concepts, things like that. And that's what I did. Uh, for my first independent study, it was with uh, Dr. Jim Hammond. And it was a fundamental independent study because I was doing a research literature review on the research of closed ecological systems. I needed to understand where the research has been, the history of it and where it is now, what challenges are still uh, happening, what open questions are still happening, as well as what successes we, they, that have been had in, in the space as well. Um, and that's something I would recommend for anyone who's looking into a particular field of interest is to do an initial literature review to see what's out there, to see what the open questions are, because that can help you find the questions that you want to answer in your research. And so that's pretty much what I was doing uh, through this first research independent study. And what I found was much of the conversation surrounding closed ecological systems was engineer dominated. So a lot of engineers work on this, some biologists, but it, was, it wasn't really a multidisciplinary field, which you would think that it would. <laughs> it would be with something like closed ecological systems. It seems like, oh, you should have environmental scientists, you should have soil scientists, uh, you should have chemists, animal science. Animal science. Uh yeah chemistry mm -hmm. engineering I, yeah. it touches on human health too if you're talking about introducing humans to it yep and that's that that's an important part of my journey because <laughs> that's where I realized I didn't need to pursue medical school to be able to help with human health uh, which is why I ultimately decided the PhD route because I could even converge my passion for human health into my study of the environment and space exploration. But yeah, that that jumps ahead to my senior year. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome though, that, that's, that's just amazing. And so, yeah, you, so you're doing this research, you do the independent study. Um, so then, then what do you decide to do? Yeah, so out of this research independent study with Dr. Heffernan, um, I developed a new model uh, for a closed ecological system. And I decided to reterm uh, what this new model I developed was. I termed it a quasi-closed agroecological system because what I was doing was I was learning about these fundamental environmental science, ecological, agro, agro, agronomic principles and theories 
that weren't necessarily being applied to the research because they didn't necessarily have experts in those fields helping with it. And so I was learning the fundamental ideas and principles that environment scientists, soil scientists, biologists learn, and then spinning it into how can we use those, that knowledge to solve the challenges of a closed ecological system that we see. And so I developed this new model for a quasi-closed agroecological system. And it also is called the three zone model. And out of this, I actually got a US uh, patent for it. Um, so uh, I can provide- Very impressive, yeah. that, that's awesome, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could provide- Getting a patent is like one of my dreams. Yeah, so. <laughs> oh, if you need help with the process, I've gone through the process. <laughs> we'll let you know when I come up with something worthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was definitely really cool. Like it was a eureka moment for me. Like this idea for a quasi-closed agroecological system came to me when I was sitting on the ground outside of my mentor's office in like a hallway uh, for the Nicholas, inside the Nicholas School of the Environment. And I was just writing in my notebook and I have the notebook like up on my top shelf of my bookcase. And I could turn to the page where the Eureka moment happened <laughs> because it was just, it kind of just all came together in that moment of how I could solve some of these challenges for these systems. And like, as soon as it hit me, I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> and so like, you can see in my notebook that I'm like just scribbling down all of these questions and diagramming out this system. And that's, that became uh, the, the three zone model that is now a patent. Um, and I pretty much took this idea out of this research independent study and decided to do an experiment. And that's where uh, my next mentor, uh, uh, Dr. Justin Wright, uh, who is a biologist, um, he did, an, he did an, two research independent studies with me. Um, and he was also my, my major advisor uh, for, for my biology major. So it worked out really well. Um, and Pretty much with him, I developed this idea for our Mars agriculture experiment, uh, where I wanted to test some of these uh, ecological theories that I was learning about. So for example, the theory of ecological succession, which is this theory of how ecosystems form over time. How do they go from bare rock to the community that we see outside today? So especially like communities that if a disturbance were to go through can be resilient and come back after that. Um, so I wanted to look at how we could develop an agricultural system on Mars using the Martian regolith uh, and apply these, these theories and principles. Um, and so one of the major hurdles I had to get over was how do I, get Mars regolith simulant. <laughs> and for people who don't recognize the word regolith, regolith is the term used for like Martian soil, lunar soil. Um, it's, it's pretty much 
uh, a term used for that kind of geological substrate that does not have like biologics in it. Um, so I had to get over this hurdle of how do I get my hands on Mars regolith simulate, especially an amount that would allow me to test these questions that I was asking. Um, and so again, I had to pull up my bootstraps, you could say, and I cold called two researchers at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. I was gonna say, we have a Mars yard. <laughs> yep, yep, I, I cold called two of them uh, and they got together on a phone conference with me so I could explain what my ideas were. And they were very much interested in what I was doing because again, like this wasn't really something that people were openly talking about. There are definitely people at this time who are working on it, but it wasn't really in the media. It wasn't really a huge, a huge question that we now see it as. Um, and so they pretty much, what they did was they got me in contact with their supplier of Mars regolith simulant, put in a lot of good words for me. And then I talked with the supplier and the supplier donated 2,000 pounds, 2,000 pounds of Mars regolith simulant to my experiment. The only thing I had to pay for was to ship it via freight <laughs> across the <laughs> yeah, country because it was coming from California. Um, yeah. And so I can say that I've had to ship something via one of those huge trucks, like the huge tractor trailers. Uh, they we had to do that to get the 2,000 pounds of Mars regolith simulant over uh, to, to Duke. And I'm very grateful for the JPL scientists and uh, the, the company that supplied me with the Mars regolith simulant because they helped me get past this hurdle that led to me eventually deciding to pursue soil science for my PhD. Um, so very, very grateful for them. Um, and so this actually leads into the creation of my company because when the Mars regolith simulant arrived at Duke, I was actually in Washington DC at the time at the Humans to Mars Summit. Mm -hmm. um, and this was, oh, I'm trying to not get all my dates mixed up. This was back in May of 2016. Um, when this was happening. And at this conference, uh, I it was my first space conference ever. And I was kind of expecting more people to talk about like the space agriculture element, like how are we gonna feed people when we get to Mars? But nobody talked about it. it again, it was it was conversations dominated by engineers, uh, roboticists, like mostly focused on how do we get to Mars instead of what we do when we get there. Um, and like, it really showed me that there was nobody really filling this niche in the space industry. And of course, my dad was with me at the conference uh, because I didn't want to go alone. And of course, he's also interested in what I was doing because his master's in physics also had a space element to it as well. Uh, so he 
some of my passion for space exploration came from him as well. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so we were both at the conference and I had to like call down to do to make sure they received the Mars regolith and everything for the experiment that was going to happen that summer. Um, and through this experience, my dad and I pointed out, it's like nobody's filling this niche. Nobody's really talking about space agriculture. We need to do something about this. <laughs> and so on, on my, so my brother, one of my brothers lived in Washington, DC. We were staying with him and we were sleeping on his couch, his pullout couch. Um, and so on the pullout couch in, in the middle of this Washington, DC apartment, we created deep space ecology. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like a testament to most entrepreneurial activities, right? Is like be passionate about an issue and just take the time to recognize a problem that hasn't been worked on or an extension or implication of an action that hasn't been thought about and then, you know, indulge yourself in it. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's awesome. That's such a, like, I can like imagine it vividly in my mind, you know, <laughs> you're here up late <laughs> coming up with scheming, you yeah. know, for these plans. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And really, yeah, deep space ecology was created based on the research that I was doing. And then like seeing this open niche in the in the space industry. Um, so it, whew, it's been a wild ride. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's amazing. So I mean, you're in school now and you're in school then too. Um, so I'm is your dad still sharing in the duties while you're while you're away doing your PhD? Yeah, so uh, pretty much since the founding of Deep Space Ecology back in May of 2016, uh, he is the CEO of Deep Space Ecology, and I am the found co-founder and chief science officer of the company. Um, and we both agreed upon this because he has a little bit more experience with like that level of like business stuff. Um, and then of course I was an undergraduate student finishing up my junior year, going into my senior year, trying to do this large scale Mars agriculture experiment, trying to write my double honors thesis. It was, <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I'm very grateful that he took up the position of CEO. And, um, and so we were pretty much both on a learning curve with with running a business because we both didn't have like formal education in business or management or anything like that um we're both scientists researchers <laughs> uh he also is an engineer um so we both had a learning curve some of the things that helped us really establish deep space ecology was finding mentors in in business. Uh, so uh, our chief uh, executive uh, strategist, you could say, uh, he business strategist, he, his name is Dan Lopez. And uh, we were able to connect with him through just like some connections we had in the space industry. And he's been with us since 2016, helping us with deep space ecology. And he has like the knowledge about business and uh, startup culture that we didn't have. And so something I would say for people who very much want to start their own business, gain, gain the mentors, surround yourself with people who are experts in things that you don't necessarily 
that you're not necessarily an expert in because you can't really know everything. Uh, it would take a lot of your time and you could possibly get to that point, but it would take a bit of time. And so surrounding yourself with a team that believes in your mission, that believes in you and what you're trying to accomplish and is willing to put in the time and effort to help guide you through the experience of creating a business. Uh, we were very lucky to find uh, Dan and the other mentors that we have uh, early on. Um, and so, yeah, it, <laughs> it was an experience to be a student balancing a business and especially being an executive level person in a business um, and trying to get out this message of what deep space ecology was about and really show the space industry that we need to bring more people in from other disciplines. We need to increase the amount of diversity when it comes to people and voices and fields and ideas uh, because like, I'm not joking when I said, when I say like at the different conferences I was speaking at during this time, people would come up to me and say, I'd never heard anything like this. Like this was a new, completely new to them. The idea of uh, space agriculture or the idea of applying soil science, ecological theories and principles into this system because Except when you bring it up, it just feels so obvious, yeah. like an obvious problem we need to address. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> so um, that that was really cool. But like, even as I say, there are people who were really excited about what I was doing. That doesn't mean that there weren't other people who who tried to bring me down, you could say, like just people who said, I can't take you seriously because you're an undergraduate student, you're not a researcher, or I can't take you seriously because of your age, or you're, you don't have a PhD, so you're not an expert. I can't, even if your science is sound, I, I'm just going to ignore it. Um, even like some fellow women coming up to me and just kind of degrading me in front of other people <laughs> as well. It was just like, yeah. oh my, like, um, so it wasn't all like sunshine and roses and all of that. There are definitely experiences, um, where yeah, I think, yeah. I think, I mean, that's a common, common thing, no matter what field, right. Is you're always going to find people who aren't going to root for you. They're going to try to disqualify you mm -hmm. based on your education or your background or, and, and I mean, they're just, I hate to simplify, they're just haters, right? And it, uh, either they're jealous or they don't understand the vision or, you know, whatever it is, but it, I think it's important to keep, to keep going. I think, I think if, I think one thing we need in academia is, is uh, a better form or template for criticism, right? Yeah. It, it shouldn't just be women talking down on other women because of some sort of power hierarchy or, or men, you know, being able to say things without accountability, that there really needs to be a way to provide criticism that's helpful. Because mm -hmm. if it's not constructive, however valid maybe the feeling, it's never going to lead to anything productive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's something that uh, I've definitely had to grow with thicker skin uh, with with the experiences that I went through. But it's also allowed me to realize how I should act with other people as well. Um, like, I don't want to degrade someone because I know how that feels. Um, 
So like the way I approach people, the way that I talk with people uh, is very much based on my own lived experiences, but also through like talking with other people who have gone through other experiences due to their background, their socioeconomics, their race, the way that they look, their sexuality, all of that, listening to them and realizing, oh, if I want to be a mentor, if I want to be an ally, if I want to learn and grow and make some kind of an impact in this field, I need to be active in making sure and being mindful of the way I treat others and the way I approach especially difficult situations. Um, yeah, and that goes back to your point about talking about adversity, um, to build resilience in a community and, and to sort of steer your goals and, and focus. And so that, I think that comes full circle, um, mm-hmm. which, is, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> very cool. And so you actually do a lot of this kind of outreach work and you are very mindful. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the stuff you're doing at Cornell and in the community as an ally and as a woman in STEM. Yeah, definitely. Um, So yes, I'm a white woman. I'm also part of the LGBTQIA2S plus community. Um, I'm asexual and panromantic. And it, I actually just came out last year about being asexual and panromantic. So it's still very new for me to say that out loud <laughs> because there is yeah yeah I understand yeah, yeah, yeah there is a lot that I had to go through with that because for the longest time I didn't even feel welcome in the LGBT community um so I, I mean it's such a large spectrum that I feel like there there are niche communities within it and that's true for so many different types of diversity mm-hmm. identities right like I a South Asian woman don't identify with so many other South Asian women either oh. because of you know where we come from or generationally where we are or how Indian we feel we are um <laughs> it just uh, you know it, and it's true for all those communities but it, I think these like labels and identities are also helpful in like finding our tribe right exactly um, mm-hmm. yeah yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Pr- proud of you. I mean, I'm really <laughs> proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely been an experience, and it's working through like working through my own uh, coming out story, working through like working in different communities and different spaces. Um, I've had to face some of the unbeknownst to me biases that I didn't even realize I had. Like, I, I now identify, like, um, for example, uh, with the LGBTQ plus community, um, I never really felt welcome there because, like, asexuality is, um, already a very like underrepresented community within that community um, that is very much dominated by like lesbian and gay people who are lesbian and gay. Um, and that's the same with the trans community. It's like the trans community pretty much brought forward the liberation movement for gay rights, uh, especially with like the Stonewall uprising. But even with the amount of effort and the work that they've put in, they too have had 
been pushed to the side for a lot of the history and what they've done. Um, so like, I had to work through some of the underlying negative feelings that I had uh, with like having people in the LGBT community say something about like asexual people and I'm like, okay, I don't feel comfortable here. I, I don't think I should, could ever be part of this community and I've had to work through those feelings. Um, and one of the ways I've worked through those feelings uh, is becoming the, uh, the uh, manager of social media for Q grads at Cornell. And Q grads is the LGBTQIA2S plus uh, graduate student association. And so I got more involved with uh, that association and I became their, uh, an executive board member, particularly someone who manages their social media. And one of the things that I wanted to do with the social media was use it as a resource for not only people who are part of QGrads, but also the wider uh, public as well. So with the social media, I have like daily posts where we explore uh, queer history, where we, ex we explore uh, important figures, LGBTQ plus figures, uh, as well as explore organizations that are resources that can help provide support uh, to people in the community. And through this experience of learning more about the history of the LGBTQ plus community and like talking with people who are part of the community and having them accept me for who I am and show love to me as well, it, it started to change some of those negative feelings and uncertainties that I had and made it so I actually felt welcome. Um, I think something I, I really admire about your stories, Morgan, is that, you know, you have these, you know, everyone's an intersectional person. We have multiple identities, but like, I've always had to wear my identity on my sleeve, yeah. right? Like I'm a visible South Asian woman. Mm -hmm. um, but you've had these, you know, these, these health problems that you've had to overcome that are not visible anymore, right? Yeah. Like I can't see your pain. Um, and then, you know, coming out, like you no know, one would know that unless you you express yeah. it. it it was a voluntary choice and so like you put yourself in these vulnerable positions and you don't just say oh i'm vulnerable you dive right into those communities and that's exactly what people should do people should find their community and find that support um and lean on each other and i think that's such a testament to like the resiliency that you've built um and, and a part of your success right in in your work and, and everything so that's that's awesome yeah good yeah. for you it took me a long time to learn so <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah no it's definitely been definitely been a learning experience and like I've I've had to address my ignorance because even though I was technically part of the LGBTQ plus community because I identify as asexual I still had ignorance I was still ignorant about a lot of things and my ignorance was leading to a perception of the community even though like like my my twin brothers are both gay like my sister is also lgbt uh my oldest brother is the only like straight one <laughs> in our family <laughs> um but like i was still harboring some resentment and some of it was self-loathing as well and i feel like a lot of people may be able to connect with that it's like 
you can identify as something, but you could still have some underlying resentment just because of the way people have treated you, uh, having ignorance about the community or about even the way you view yourself. Um, and so something I've had to learn is it's not shameful to be ignorant. It's only shameful when we actively decide to stay in our ignorance. Everyone starts somewhere with learning and worldview. And it's most of the time it's not our fault because it can be the community that we're living in, the, the location, the physical location we're in, the people surrounding us. But when we have an opportunity to expose ourselves to new people, new cultures, new ideas, and expand our worldview and leave that point of ignorance, that we need to take that opportunity and grab it. Because like nobody should be shamed for their ignorance. It's only becomes a problem when we actively decide to stay where we are and not move. Um, so that's something that I've actively uh, done throughout my life, um, or at least tried to do <laughs> throughout my yeah, life. I know, that's, yeah. That's a good point. I, I, I mean, I went to school in the South and uh, I had my number of struggles yeah. of not fitting in and always having to be an advocate for diversity. And, and a lot of people, you know, just wondered why I would dig deeper into di diversity work and things like that. And I was like, well, I, I kind of look around and I see people who want to learn and they're curious, but they've just never had the opportunity. And then I see a lot of people who are, are very happy in their ignorance and in their current, you know, beliefs in their communities. Um, and, and if I can reach the few who are curious, then I've, you know, made the world a better place as cheesy as that sounds. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it's that great personal sacrifice, right? So it's like, you have to have this good boundary between like self-care and putting yourself in vulnerable situations and actually like being part of your own community mm -hmm. that takes care of you and already empathizes with yeah. your disposition. Um, yeah. So that's, that's the trick, right? Is, yeah. is finding the balance. Yeah. And being okay. It's okay to say no. It's okay mm -hmm. to say, I cannot do this. I cannot participate in this event, this activity. I can't lead this entire event because I need to prioritize my, my, like you said, my health care, my mental health, but also like, that's not the only pathway a person can take to make a difference. Um, like, it's okay to say no to that, especially if you feel like your time is more well spent in another uh, activity or another group or another event or research, anything that you're doing. It's okay to say no. Um, and that's something that I, I need to work on. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I have to, I, I need to help. And like, whatever people, like what, I, I always feel like if somebody asks me to help, and it's in, within my means that I can't say no, but I also realize that I've put myself into situations where uh, my mental health has deteriorated just a wee bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I I need to work on I need to work on that. So I'm I'm still a work in progress, um, and it's something that like I feel like everyone needs a little practice in. It's like you, you can say no. Yeah. Yeah. And, and taking the time to prioritize yourself. I uh, was recently, recently reading up on, you know, uh, self-care for those involved in diversity and 
and diverse activism, those who come from, you know, vulnerable communities. And I think that's something we overlook, right? This constant state of being vulnerable is very, it takes a toll. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So it's not just about like saying no, it's about saying yes to yourself. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Amen to that. (laughs) 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 Saying yes to yourself. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I should put that on my wall or something. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, I actually have like some things that I put on my wall to remind myself. Uh, one of the things that I have on my wall in my office is this Sanskrit word, mudita. And mudita, like I said, is the Sanskrit word that is actually describes an emotion that we don't, we don't have a word for this emotion in English. And mudita is the emotion of feeling joy and happiness for somebody else's well-being, for somebody else's successes. And I have that up on my wall to remind myself that I need to be happy and I need to be joyful for when other people are well, for other people's successes. Uh, And that will bring more joy into my life as well. Um, So that's, so if you ever need a word to describe that emotion, it's mudita, yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the whole ethos of like everything you're pursuing, right. Is like, you know, you're, you're working on human health, you're working on soil science that can impact so many industries and lives. And it, it, I think sometimes we see science as like someone has this very particular interest and then they're going to pursue this interest. They're going to have a career that serves them. And it's this sort of self-centered view of why people are in this field. Um, And we don't really always think as like science as a service industry, but you know, when I work at JPL, yeah, it's cool and, and all these other things. But when I think of it, it's it's exciting to be part of this community and to be part of like humanity's efforts. And it's it's always these really broad, visionary, cheesy topics um, that that motivate me. But I think yeah, that is really where the root of happiness is from. It you know having a, a decent life and all the other things come mm-hmm. come kind of after. Um, if you know you're making an impact, then, then I, that gives purpose, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's something that my my parents taught me early on. It's like it's, it's, my family's interesting because we started off highly conservative when I was growing up. Uh, we were part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormons. Um, and like, so I grew up in that kind of environment, but my parents always showed me this example of service. And like, we would take in families uh, who were experiencing food insecurity, who lost their home at, that weren't able to support themselves or a single mother and her kids who like had some issues with the father sadly um but or giving money to the homeless and never being judgmental about it um and so I grew up in that kind of environment with those examples and then of course my family completely liberalized <laughs> when I was in high school and college like we <laughs> We, that's a that's an impressive change, especially because I know, like I, I grew up around a number of Mormon families, yeah. um, and something I noticed was, you know, regardless of personal belief, it's very hard to like let go of the stability that 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 community offers. Yeah. Um, and so that that's an incredible 
transition mm -hmm. um, to go through and, and one that really leans towards, you know, trying new things and taking risk. And I, I can kind of see how that, that influenced you. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's why I, I'm very much involved in service and being involved with, with groups and activities where I can help with diversity and inclusion and help widen my worldview to make sure that I can use privileges that I have to serve others, um, but also to listen, other, listen to others and understand when I need to really step back and allow other people to take like center front stage. Um, so it's like having that background, having those examples growing up and then being involved in the organizations that I'm involved in. And I know I, I just talked about Q grads, but I'm also involved in like SACNIS, which is the Society for Advancement of Chicanos, Hispanics, and Native Americans in Science. Um, I'm one of their uh, outreach uh, officers. So I help with outreach opportunities, all of that. Um, I'm also involved with Skype a Scientist, which is a organization where I get to connect with classrooms around the world and show students and expose students to the science that I'm doing, which I wasn't exposed to when I was growing up. Yeah, I, I love that. That's one of the best things that I get to do is like, like after the rover landed, you know, I, I got a bunch of calls from schools and because of kind of silver lining in the pandemic, I'm talking to schools around the country and you're right, like Skyping and making scientists more accessible is really making a difference in some of these classrooms, yeah. like like the ones that I grew up in in Nebraska that didn't have access to these kinds of people. Um, and so it's just, it's a great way to give back and it kind of mm -hmm. goes with your whole ethos of finding joy in other people. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I definitely love talking with students. And I think one of the like most like I don't know, it was just kind of like a ooh moment where I actually talked with a high school class from my hometown. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my, oh my God, that was like talking with the students. I'm like, I thought exactly where you guys were sitting, like in this location, in this school, like I, I was you and this is where I am now. And like, just having that, I felt like a, such a deep connection with them. Uh, and that's something that I always want to bring forward when I'm talking with students of all ages is that connection. It's like, I'm, I'm technically still a student. I'm in my 19th year of school, <laughs> yeah. but I, I'm still a student and I'm still learning. And this is the path that I took and here are the lessons that I learned in the experiences that I've been through. And hopefully this can help these students with whatever path they decide, whether they want to go into a trade or go to college or really whatever yeah. their passions lead them to um, and not be afraid to sometimes take that risk uh, to, yeah. to take the path that like society said that they should take, but instead jump and go a different location. And like, there's nothing wrong with changing your path especially yeah and also yeah. like changing 
this idea that society has that like this is what education looks like and this is when it's finished and when you start life and become productive and yeah. in truth there is no binary there right like education is never finished yeah. um and so if you kind of hold that mindset you start to realize well school has a purpose and you can achieve things for society while in school and you can do a phd and it's not a waste of time and i think as soon as we change that sort of like paradigm and, and the way we view our life like so many new opportunities and the ability to take change and go back to school like I am right those all become mm-hmm. more accessible yeah exactly yeah uh some some of my friends growing up uh didn't go to college they they went the trade route instead and one of True. one of my good friends Nathan he is very successful in the roofing business like he pretty much uh took this company that was kind of not not doing well and he he read some business books and he did the work and he actually got the business back on its feet and that led to him like advancing in leadership and now he is invited to talk at like conferences in the industry for roofing um and i it's one of those situations where it's like if you decide college is not your path, you can still be successful and you can still. Yeah, education yeah. has so many different forms, right? I mean, even in the space industry, a place that we often think is is solely for the scientists and these, you know, people who went to these great universities, it's, you know, we also have technicians. We can't, we can't build anything without that, you know, baseline understanding of how materials work and how these systems work. Um, and so it, you could be in any field. I mean, there's that famous quote, right? Like even the custodian at Johnson said, you know, I'm helping put a man on the moon. And that's kind of true. We need diverse career paths. We need, you know, we need graphic designers to explain complex scientific thoughts. Like we need people in different skill sets mm-hmm. t- to make every mission happen. Yeah, yeah. And that's like, not only is that like a, a main like part of the way I approach Um, my life, but it's also the main part of how I approach my research as well. Uh, A lot of the research that I do brings in traditional ecological knowledge and looking at indigenous communities and looking at their agricultural systems and the lessons that they've learned. And I've realized through talking with uh, people and through learning their stories and respectfully listening and like just being present in their presence, I've learned that they are scientists, they are experimental, their ancestors figured out how to live with the land, figured out how the land works so that they could live in balance with it and create these beautiful, sustainable systems that survived for hundreds, thousands of years. And they didn't necessarily understand the fundamental science behind what was happening, but they, they figured out how to apply it. And it's just, that's one of the reasons why like, I have major respect uh, for, for anyone like working in within the fields that I'm working in, whether they have a college education or not, like, because I've learned more from a farmer who has a high school education than I've had from some of my professors. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Yeah, sometimes in academia, we have a lot of, you know, 
these technical skills, but we don't really have applicable knowledge. Um, and that's kind of a strange place to be I in, know. right? Is you know a lot about something that you've never done. Yeah, and I think it goes into this like, stigma, the stigma of like applicational research, applicational knowledge is not scientific research. You have to do fundamental research to be a scientist. And I understand the importance of fundamental research. I'm performing fundamental research, but you you also need to make sure you have an application. Otherwise you're disconnecting yourself from community, from the world, from people who can benefit from the knowledge that you're discovering, that you're uncovering. Um, and that's something that definitely academia needs to work on. Uh, that's another reason why any of the fundamental research that I'm doing, I make sure I have an application for it. I'm like, whether that- And I think it's yeah. not just sharing like, hey, we have this fundamental research near our applications, but, but to say, hey, we, we tried to apply it to this industry and we failed, right? We don't talk about our failures. We don't publish our failures. Yep. Um, and we're dooming others to repeat it. Yeah, always, always be public about the failures because failure- has this like negative connotation with it, but failure really is an opportunity to begin again with more knowledge and experience than we had when we first began. And so failure isn't like a stop point, it is an opportunity. And we need to share that opportunity for with other people so that like we may have failed in this respect, in this moment, but maybe there's somebody out there who can take that opportunity, that failure, and figure out the pathway forward with it. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm supposed to say that this isn't like a JPL affiliated or NASA podcast, but I, I always end like my talk conversations with students with this quote. It's actually a Theodore Roosevelt quote, but uh, it's it's the motto of JPL, um, and it's to dare mighty things because it's far better to dare mighty things than to live in the twilight that the gray twilight that knows neither uh, success nor defeat. And I, I just love that. And I love telling students that because it's, you know, it's so true. There's, there's success in trying, there's success in doing something brave. There's that opportunity that you're talking about and, and to never try is, it just feels like the greatest failure. Out yeah. There. Yeah. And that's, that's why it's important for us working in the fields that we're working in to share our successes and failures, to share our journeys, uh, because that can be an encouragement for, for other younger students to walk their own paths and realize that when they come upon that challenge, when they come upon that gorge that they have to get over, um, that there are other people before them who were able to do it and they can use that standing on the shoulders of the people who came past uh, to help them overcome. I think it's also recognizing like if your interests change and you're nurturing new interests then like you're not necessarily throwing away all previous education or work, right? Yeah. There's, there's still a foundation, there's transferable knowledge. Um, and so it, it makes it less scary. Yeah, I mean like a good example of this is when I changed my major from biophysics to environmental science and biology and chemistry, um, I took classes that no longer 
technically applied to my major. <laughs> so I'm like, I, I'm highly grateful for those like that multivariate calculus class that I took that no longer applied to my major because when I entered graduate school, it actually helped a lot. Or back in high school, when I had a mentorship at NASA Langley Research Center in Virginia, um, I learned how to work with electron microscopy and these other uh, uh, instruments. And I thought I would never use that again. <laughs> but that ended up with me years later getting a job at Duke Shared Materials Instrumentation Facility where I was able to use my experience to work with electron microscopy again and do research with like high school students about how they can analyze things using these uh, microscopes. And then we hop to now here at Cornell and electron microscopy, atomic force microscopy are now part of my PhD research. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, you never know where it's gonna come back. Yeah, yeah, this, this, this knowledge and experience and skills that you have that don't necessarily seem applicable can really help you in your journey with your career. Yeah. Um, those hobbies. Yeah. And my yeah. first, my first internship was actually at JP Morgan in investment banking on the tech side. And I, I wanted to do space or biomed engineering. And everyone was like, why are you doing this internship? And it was because it was after my sophomore year and it was super hard to get an internship after your sophomore year. And if you wanted a really good one after junior year, you needed some work experience. And I'm like, this is a you know, chicken or egg, like, I don't know what to do first. Um, but I just went to talk to a random table at the career fair. The empty one was JP Morgan. I was like, I'll practice, you know, and I ended up getting an offer and I took it because I just wanted to learn something new yeah. and I wanted to experience the industry. And it turns out that like the way they approach systems thinking is the exact like systems thinking and the way we approach risk and risk mitigation and analytics and all these things at, you know, on spacecraft. Yeah. And, and so those tools, like they come back all the time. I feel like I got more formal systems training there than, than even now. <laughs> yeah, no, when I was uh, part of the class of 2017, Brooke Owens fellows, I, I was a scientist, but my summer internship through uh, being a Brookie uh, was at Avicent, which is a consulting firm in Washington, DC. And I knew a little bit about consulting because one of my brothers had worked in consulting, um, but I was working in their space industries division and I was like looking at rockets and the small sats and I'm just like, <laughs> I have no experience with this. <laughs> But the skills that I learned in doing analyst work and looking at customer landscapes and data sets and working in Excel and all this stuff helped me with, my, with the work I'm doing in my PhD. A lot of the skills that I gained from working as a summer analyst in consulting is transferable into the science I'm doing today. I'm sure it's helping with your business too. Like Excel yes. is such a skill <laughs> and we don't really value it till we're like in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely helping with my business as well. Um, and there are definitely opportunities for people like undergraduate students to be involved and get these opportunities as well. The Brooke Owens Fellowship, uh, the Patty Grace Smith Fellowship, the Z Factor Fellowship. Uh, I'm probably missing other fellowships uh 
but there are definitely fellowships that are helping to empower uh, underrepresented people uh, who are very much wanting to enter the aerospace industry and become aerospace space professionals. Um, so I would encourage anyone who's listening to definitely look into these fellowships and like other groups and organizations that are working to help increase diversity as well as inclusion uh, in the space industry. Yeah, I think there's so much good advice in this podcast. I'm really excited for any student who gets to listen to it because I wish I had something like this, you know, when I was an undergrad. Um, so yeah, I think this this was awesome, Oregon. Thank you for your time. Um, thank you for all your wisdom. I feel like I'm prepared to take on my week. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm glad we met. We actually met digging out mud from a house basement, doing Habitat for Humanity volunteering at oh, Cornell. Yeah. Um, uh, covered in mud but it so was much mud. I'm so glad we met so much mud there's nothing but mud <laughs> <laughs> but yeah thank you thank you so much um I hope your family and friends listen to this and they I hope they just feel so proud of you because yeah you're amazing so thank you so much thank you so much for having me and people can reach out to me uh through my company uh, deep space ecology or website deepspaceecology.com uh, I'm also on social media at astroecologist on Instagram, at astroecomorgan on Twitter. Uh, so yeah, people can feel free to follow me or reach out to me if they have more questions. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. All right. Uh, thanks everyone. And that's, that's all for today. Ladies and gentlemen, we're floating in space.